for every violent group or every terrorist group or insurgency. The online battle is key because they are the weak fighting against the strong, uh, the strong being uh, regular army, state forces, and so on. So violent actors are therefore in an asymmetric warfare where the digital space is, is crucial. Hi, I'm Anne Krane. I'm a senior research analyst at Tech Against Terrorism, an organization that supports the global tech sector tackle terrorist and violent extremist use of the internet whilst respecting human rights. Welcome to another episode of our podcast. This week, we're looking into how violent Islamist groups exploit the internet. Today, we're chatting to Mina Alami again, who leads the jihadist media team at BBC Monitoring and has spent 15 years tracking and analyzing jihadist activity online. And Lawrence Binner, who's the co-founder of the Jihadisco Project, a platform for extremist and terrorist propaganda analysis. And we'll again be getting insight from Arthur Bradley, who's part of Tech Against Terrorism's Ozen team. Throughout the episode, we'll explore how different violent Islamist groups use the internet, how this has evolved in the last decade, and why these networks are so resilient to content moderation efforts. We'll share some of the things we're doing here at Tech Against Terrorism to counter this threat and consider what tech companies and governments can do to help. When we talk about violent Islamists, we'll be focusing on certain groups such as Islamic State and Al-Qaeda, as well as other lesser-known organizations. It's important to say here that while violent Islamist groups may share similar violent Islamist ideologies, their approaches actually differ significantly. So much so, they have often found themselves in conflict with one another. And so, just as their approaches differ, so does their use of the internet. However, as Lawrence explains, an online presence is crucial to all violent Islamists. For every violent group or every terrorist group or insurgency, the online battle is key because they are the weak fighting against the strong, uh, the strong being uh, regular army, state forces, and so on. So violent actors are therefore in an asymmetric warfare where the digital space is, is crucial. So what is it crucial for? It's crucial for propaganda, of course, to disseminate strategic outlines, to disseminate uh, their ideology, to intimidate their enemies or the population under the control, to issue guidelines also. For instance, it's during a 2014 speech that uh, Abu Mohamed al-Adnani, which was uh, uh, one of the former ISIS uh, spokesmen, he advised individuals that could not emigrate to the Levant to carry out attack at home. So for all this propaganda issue, it's crucial. But the internet is also used in a more operational and concrete capacity with an offensive approach uh, to raise funds, to disseminate tutorials, to uh, suggest targets, to recruit, to create cells, to share modus operandi but also in a defensive capacity on how to navigate online, how to remain under the radar, how to use Tor browser, how to use VPNs. And so the issue for this group is that similarly to what is going on in the real life, they have to fight the battle of the weak against the strong online too, because also in the digital space, they are weaker than the enemies. Uh, they are weaker than, than their adversaries, who are the authorities, the platforms, the internet vigilance. And we can really draw a parallel between the war of attrition on the ground, 
and the digital war of attrition that they are conducting online with quite striking uh, similarities. As Lawrence mentioned there, violent Islamists use the internet for a host of reasons, from sharing propaganda to raising money and recruiting new members. But where are these groups operating online? Here's Mina. So in general, jihadists, um, a lot of them, they do use the messaging app Telegram and another platform called Rocket Chat. But just to say, they are gutted actually to be confined to these platforms. That's not where they want to be. Where jihadists want to be really is the popular social media platforms. They want to be on Twitter, on Facebook, on TikTok and Instagram. That's where they really want to be because that's where they can reach out really to a global audience. That's where they can put out messages to intimidate their enemies, but also to recruit, to find potential young recruits. It's where all the action is, where all the young people are, and that's where they want to be. But for many years, of course, they've been confined to certain platforms that have, you know, strong on, you know, encryption and, and privacy. So the messaging app Telegram is a big place where jihadists uh, operate. IS, so IS has its official outlets or accounts on the messaging app Telegram. It operates multiple mirror accounts so that when one, two or 10 are taken down, others are still active. But also it resorts to various ways to maintain these accounts and to make sure that any user who is subscribed will always get the latest. And I can say from my experience, I've rarely had a, um, a moment when we had no access to IS propaganda. I think there was one big kind of, of course, clampdown in November 2019, but that was very short. Um, otherwise, it's been very resilient on uh, Telegram. It also has similar mirror accounts on the platform Rocket Chat. It also has accounts on Element. But then, of course, it relies on its network of supporters as well as media groups that kind of, I think some think that they are official, like Caliphate News Agency. They're not really official, official IS, but they do take it on uh, themselves to kind of promote IS's official propaganda. So then they rely on this network to push the the, the propaganda beyond Telegram and, and Rocket Chat and Element. You know, they, they've tried repeatedly to have accounts on Twitter and on other platforms, but these accounts get shut down quickly. So they still use these platforms. For example, Rocket Chat, not many people know about Rocket Chat. So it's very unlikely for them to reach a global audience through Rocket Chat. However, the way they use it is like a dissemination point. So this is kind of a good place because it's very, you know, any accounts are very resilient on Rocket Chat because users can ba- you know, basically launch their own servers and they, that can't be really touched by the software designers. So they use it as an archive, as a dissemination point, and their hope is that their army of online supporters would then go and splash that content across various social media platforms. Building on Mina's reference to supporter network spreading propaganda, let's turn to Arthur from Tech Against Terrorism to explain this online dissemination in more detail. One strategy is to rely on supporter networks to reshare and repurpose official content, something Arthur says Islamic State is particularly good at. The group's got several centralized media organizations which are kind of responsible for pushing the original uh, official content via its own curated channels on the internet. All of this content is complete with official media logos and branding, so easily identifiable as being official content. These days, this content's kind of first posted in private channels and groups, which are accessible really via a join link or a point of contact. As I say, IS has several official centralized propaganda arms, which are disseminated by its own kind of Nashir news aggregator. Any content that's not posted in these locations generally is not official. 
at its peak, uh, you know, several years ago, Islamic State released content in multiple different languages. But these days, official content is is almost exclusively produced in Arabic. In terms of the supporter networks, these have these have been important, you know, since the early days of Islamic State. But I would argue have become even more important now, and that is in part due to a drop in in the frequency and volume of official IS content in the past few years, and which means really that the supporter networks have have taken up the slack and and become even more essential to the online propaganda ecosystem. So there are you know tens of of media organisations that are unofficial, which are producing uh, and repurposing Islamic State's content on a daily basis across multiple platforms, uh, including the mainstream ones. So these supporter networks, I'd say, have have three main functions. First is ensuring uh, the resilience of of official content online. So they take a multi-platform approach, operating across uh, tens of different platforms, uh, and essentially reposting and boosting official IS content across the internet. Secondly is is on availability. So a key function of these supporter networks is on translating the official content uh, and to make it available for global audiences in specific regions. And as I say, repurposing segments of official IS messaging uh, and also placing it into new contexts for specific purposes uh, and also around specific events. And then thirdly, of course, these supporter networks produce their own content. So this content's completely generated by supporters themselves, often take the form of posters and magazines, but also videos. Generally speaking, these are of a lower production quality than the official messaging, um, but there are some exceptions. So, for example, IS's provinces in countries like Afghanistan and India have their own kind of semi-official outlets that produce things like magazines on a daily basis. We often hear the phrase, Islamic State has claimed responsibility for an attack in the media. But how exactly does Islamic State go about publicizing this online? As Arthur explains, these claims are usually published to niche online spaces before they spread across the internet and make it into mainstream media headlines. So when Islamic State issues a claim for an attack, the primary claim originally emerges in in the core official IS channels. These days, these channels are, are private in that they're accessible usually either via a join link or via direct communication with a point of contact. These claims appear in the form of a, an image file, so a kind of text communique branded with with IS branding. And it's shared in these private channels, essentially with the expectation that the supporter networks will pick these up and, and, and reshare them across platforms. So as soon as this, this original claim is shared, it will appear on supporter-run channels across multiple different messaging apps and also websites which are used by IS networks. It's typical, you know, in the event of any any attack claim to identify tens of copies of any of one claim, and there could be many more for, for more high-profile attacks. Following that, you often get sanitized versions of the claim appearing on larger platforms. So essentially, this will probably entail some amended text or some redacted sections of the image, and also converted into other formats. So sometimes you get videos compiling IS messaging, for example. And then obviously the the ultimate aim for IS really with these claims is to get their messaging into the mainstream media. So that's what they're aiming for. And that's the whole point. Obviously, terrorism only works if the message is spread. As we touched on in episode three, Islamic State had a significant online presence around 2013-2014 when it launched a huge online propaganda campaign. It used slick videos depicting life in the so-called caliphate to persuade thousands of people from around the world to flock to Iraq and Syria to fight. And it's fair to say the campaign worked. 
But as Lawrence explains, Islamic State's online strategy has shifted since then. I think that uh, we can establish a parallel between the evolution of ISIS militaries' activities on the ground and that of their uh, online activities. At, at the beginning, uh, ISIS occupied a, a large swath of territory. And in parallel, we could say that ISIS was also openly occupying a fraction of the digital space with uh, uncensored activity on mainstream social media, etc. In the second phase, the, the so-called caliphate uh, morphed back into an insurgency with clandestine operation uh, carried out from safe havens in, uh, in, uh, in Iraq and in Syria. And well, a similar phenomenon could be observed online. The authorities, the platforms started to uh, get organized uh, with account deletions, pages deletion, groups deletions on, on mainstream social media. Uh, well, ISIS searched for greater open operational security by migrating to the deep web and in particular to Telegram, where, where it could operate quite freely. And as on the ground, uh, ISIS also conducted some kinds of hit and run attacks from Telegram to a mainstream social media, uh, you know, sending links that would not have a very uh, high uh, longevity and short life expectancy, but they could organize media reds and elements like that from Telegram. So that would be until 20, the end of 2019. And then in November 2019, there was a major operation that took place. It was a joint operation between a Europol, Telegram, and few European states to curb ISIS presence on Telegram. And this operation has been a success and has, I would say, significantly disrupted ISIS presence on Telegram. They actually came back a few months later, but they were weakened and with a much, much shorter longevity because the operation was actually a long-term operation. And so from then, uh, ISIS ecosystem online has been much more uh, fragmented, uh, much more atomized, and much more contained into more uh, confidential platforms. So the content, and this is a good news, the content is, is much less, less accessible than before. It's also much less prolific with a, a sharp decrease uh, of production, uh, as I said before. They have less resources that, uh, that are dedicated to that field. Also, uh, media operatives have been targeted on theaters. All this have also disrupted the production. So disruption of the production and the dissemination uh, came from the authorities, from the platforms, and it also came from the military. We can think of the Operation Glowing Symphony, in 2016 that disrupted uh, ISIS network in a significant way, and also from the civil society with uh, cyber vigilantes uh, that are individuals who dedicate much of their time to, to that disruption. So, so the disruption is actually, I would say, a systemic action um, carried out by, by many, many different actors, but of course the platforms play here a very crucial, significant role. As Lauren says, IS propaganda and its online media strategy is constantly changing and reactive to world events. So now that they don't have a caliphate anymore, well, 
you still have the mention of, uh, of the caliphate in a nostalgic uh, way, but ISIS is more, um, is producing less. But I would say that there are some preferred teams uh, that are all linked to the long-term uh, survival of ISIS. So there is a large focus on the victimization of women and children in the, in the camps. Um, there is also a large focus on the prisoners and the prison breaks and the need to break uh, prison walls, which they actually did uh, a few months ago. Uh, the theme of um, the steadfastness, the difficult times and how to overcome this difficult time and remain faithful. And also... I would say that the propaganda is linked to a world event. When an important world event is, is taking place, it's uh, raising uh, some uh, propaganda products. Uh, for instance, during COVID-19, there was a surge in propaganda around this team saying that it was uh, something that uh, was the will of God, etc. The focus on France, a high focus on France, uh, one year ago, after the uh, republication of the uh, caricatures of the prophets, uh, so uh, during the months of September, October, November 2020, we witnessed a huge surge of uh, propaganda related to France and to the French laïcité, secularity, specific secularity. Also, a shift of focus to ISIS actions in Africa. So yes, you have, uh, you really have uh, a shift since uh, the, the the loss of the territory that are both themes that are uh, linked to ISIS survival and themes that uh, are outside of ISIS and linked to uh, international events. When we think about violent Islamist exploitation of the internet, it's interesting to draw comparisons between different groups that fall into this category. Take Al-Qaeda and Islamic State, for example. For IS, the main goal has been to capture and govern territory to establish a global caliphate, whereas Al-Qaeda's strategy emphasizes a more localized and gradual approach. As Lauren says, these differences are also reflected in the way they use the internet. This use embodies their ideological differences, also their strategic differences and their operational differences. And actually, their media strategy, their digital strategy, differ uh, in terms of production, in terms of formats, in terms of dissemination, uh, and also in terms of rhetorics. And all these differences respond to different kinds of positioning. So let me just uh, say a few words on, on, on these, uh, this positioning and these strategies. First of all, both groups want to establish an Islamic caliphate, but Al-Qaeda and ISIS differ in the temporality of this project. ISIS wanted to establish a caliphate quickly and by force, and Al-Qaeda is more in the long-term strategy, in a less coercive strategy, and, and first wanted to conquer the, the hearts and minds. So that's the first difference. The second difference is that ISIS is systematically excommunating non-Muslims, Shias or Sunnis who oppose them. Uh, whereas Al-Qaeda doesn't usually carry out violence against other Muslims and does, doesn't uh, uh, excommunicate them in a systematic way. And the third important difference is that ISIS wanted and needed to populate its caliphate. 
And the idea for ISIS uh, was to recruit of, over a wide spectrum of people. Uh, but Al-Qaeda, um, from its end, is, is on a more elitist approach, more intellectual approach and more ideological approach. These three uh, significant differences between the, the two groups are actually reflected in, in their media strategy. ISIS wanted to be uh, the leading brand in the, in the jihad market, and it has developed a, a, an aggressive and uh, innovative communication strategy to reach that aim in terms of content, in terms of volume of production, in terms of diversity of formats, in terms of uh, dissemination, in terms of rhetorics, and last but not least, in terms of uh, the systematic use of extreme violence, graphic violence. And so re regarding production, ISIS has built a media strategy that gave it the possibility of mass production. For instance, during the months of August 2015, there were more of uh, more than 700 media uh, that were produced in one month, which is really significant. Um, and on the contrary, Al-Qaeda is publishing on a more ad hoc basis and doesn't really search high volumes. So this was uh, regarding production. Now, if, if we're talking about distribution, it's also very interesting because the spread of ISIS content online can be compared to concentric circles. At the center of the circles, uh, you, you find the heart of the machine uh, with ISIS core media, official media, uh, such as Al-Furqan, Amak, uh, Nashir, or uh, Al-Hayat Media Center. And around these media groups, there are other foundations that are not core ISIS media, but that are let's say, ISIS-affiliated, which translate, relay, and amplify uh, this content, and some of them even generate their own content. And all this makes these elements, this content, extremely accessible to a wide range of audience in the, wealth, in the West and elsewhere. For instance, the Rumia magazine was translated into more than 15 languages, which is uh, quite significant. And on the contrary, Al-Qaeda distribution strategy reflects its decentralization strategy. Actually, Al-Qaeda successively created subsidiaries that are entrenched in local uh, politics, local issues. And to each subsidiary, uh, you have a media foundation that corresponds to it. And so this, this structure is very different to, to, to that of uh, ISIS. It's not uh, concentric circles, but it's uh, horizontal structures. And these subsidiaries publish independently from one another. Uh, you have, uh, and each of them have its own media. And so each media outlet has its own logo and its own layout. And so it's quite interesting because these media structures reflect the evolution of the group in terms of decentralization and in terms of attention that the branches give uh, to local issues and to local grievances. Uh, so, so that was uh, the, 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 the differences in terms of uh, dissemination. Uh, but there are also other uh, differences. ISIS seeks visibility, it seeks virality, it wants its content to go viral, while Al-Qaeda is not. 
uh, with some exception, but uh, usually Al-Qaeda is more interested in stability, endurance of the platforms, while ISIS is searching for platforms that uh, where content go more viral, such as Facebook, Twitter, etc. And in, in its strategy to, to, to uh, uh, target diverse audience, ISIS and its uh, media-affiliated uh, foundations have developed a, a wide variety of formats, recordings, uh, videos, sheets, posters, infographics, communique statements, magazines, weekly letters, etc. Within this content, ISIS exploits a, a very uh, varied iconography uh, and rhetorics which uh, mobilize attractive and repulsive factors to attract people and also quite emotional uh, motivation. And this is, this is very different to Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda, uh, Al-Qaeda's videos are generally more static, more discursive, more cerebral. It has a more um, intellectual, uh, political approach. One last element, which, which is, I want to mention because it's uh, extremely important, is the glorification of uh, graphic content, of glorification of violence in ISIS content. Uh, Al-Qaeda, from the start, uh, was rejecting it and condemning it, uh, fearing that, that it, it would alienate a Muslim population in the face of extreme violence, but ISIS has used it more and more and we have to admit that it has used it with a kind of success. As we've heard throughout this episode, Islamic State is known for its state-building propaganda. But is this a tactic we'll now see the Taliban adopt following their takeover of Afghanistan? It's a question I put to Mina. The thing is, the Taliban is in a, in a different position. So IS at the time, despite putting out these, you know, these um, state-building-like videos, it was still kind of, you know, sending messages of threat to the West and to the whole world and, you know, saying, you know, bring it on, we'll fight you. Whereas the Taliban, it's different. At this stage, it's trying to get international recognition. And to do that, it has to behave more like a state, more than IS, was, of course, uh, was. So you don't have these mix like IS did of, you know, violence and threats and then kind of, you know, the, the so-called good life. Uh, it's it's very different. But um, I think with a lot of these groups, especially at the beginning, there is an effort to appeal to a global audience and to appeal to Muslims to show themselves as, you know, looking after their constituents, being the defenders of, uh, of Muslims. That's how they want to portray it. So at this point, um, even for the Taliban, there's a lot of very positive messaging, a lot of very conciliatory messages to the international community, to neighbors, including to um, other ethnic groups and other religions. And, you know, the message, of course, from the Taliban has been that, you know, we have no global jihadist links. We, we have no intention of um, waging any attacks outside Afghanistan. We just want to rule the country. But of course, they want to rule it their way through Sharia. So it's it's different. And, you know, IS and the Taliban have historically been very two, very, very different groups. So, you know, comparing the two is not really an easy thing. They, yeah, they're, they're very different. Let's go back to Arthur to find out how violent Islamist groups such as Islamic State and Al-Qaeda get around content moderation online. At the moment, as I've discussed before, official IS content and official IS channels operate almost exclusively in private groups these days. And that is really as a result of adversarial shift. They're operating these groups in private 
with the expectation that their content will be picked up and reshared in public spaces by the supporter networks. Obviously, in an ideal sense, they wouldn't want to be operating in private because they want their content to reach as wide an audience as possible. But by operating in private, that often means that they can get around detection and enforcement by the tech platforms on which they're operating. Once the content is picked up and shared across the internet, you know, they're obviously sharing this with the expectation that it will be removed. But, you know, essentially they're aiming for a kind of swarm effect that produces multiple copies of content across platforms. So the typical approach by supporter networks to to reshare official IS content across the internet, as I say, it's, it's a multi-platform approach and it's likely that they're using file mirroring platforms to upload identical copies of the content across tens of platforms at the same time, sharing long lists of URLs to the content across all of those platforms. So the idea is that if you're looking for this piece of content and you come across the list of these URLs, you can essentially make your way through the list until you find one that's still up. Um, and this means you know, that the content will remain available for as long as it takes the slowest platform to take it down. I think the other point is on kind of content sanitization. And this is particularly the case on larger platforms with more uh, automated content detection systems. And this sometimes can be where terrorist content can overlap with misinformation and disinformation. So increasingly in the last kind of year or so, for sure, but this goes on for longer than that, we see terrorist organizations like Islamic State and Al-Qaeda operating accounts that are posing as objective news organizations, but the reports are based almost exclusively on on the group's activities and the group's messaging. To the untrained eye, this, this kind of content can be difficult to spot and can also explain why these kind of accounts are able to operate more openly on mainstream platforms without deletion. Although it's not just well-known violent Islamist groups who exploit the internet, Arthur explains that tech companies do tend to prioritise more high-profile groups. In terms of online uh, counter-terrorism efforts, there's definitely a big focus on IS, which obviously makes sense due to the, the global threat that it poses and also the media attention it receives. So content moderation is often prioritised based on the threat, whether it's real or, or perceived, and also in a global sense. But I think it's probably worth making the point that more regional specific languages and groups can fall through the net in terms of content moderation and and can sometimes operate more freely and openly online. So US-based tech companies are definitely making good improvements in making their moderation more global, but they can still risk sometimes being a bit US-centric in this regard. So, you know, groups that are operating in regional languages or in specific regions of the world that might not be receiving the same international attention based on global threat can sometimes fall through the net. So how does Tech Against Terrorism monitor and tackle violent Islamist content on the internet? Tech Against uh, Terrorism's approach to monitoring and removing Islamist content is essentially to focus on the core primary source of the content and those kind of core channels where the groups are operating. And from from those channels, we're able to pick up uh, the content and the outlinks to where the content is posted um, by the centralized media organizations and core supporter networks. And in that way, we're essentially able to alert multiple platforms simultaneously to the content as it's uploaded. Since November 2020, the launch of our terrorist content analytics platform, we've identified in the region of 20,000 URLs containing violent Islamist content using this methodology. And on average, more than 90% of the content that we alert is removed following our alert. 
I should say we also work more closely with some of the smaller platforms that face the greatest threat through our platform mentorship and membership program, where we essentially provide them with necessary support and resources to understand and respond in terms of content moderation. Separately, we also are actively working to disrupt terrorist websites. These involve a slightly more complicated process of reporting the domain to the relevant infrastructure providers, including evidence of how the website or the website's administrators are breaking the law in the jurisdiction in question. And what more can tech companies and governments do to counter the threat of violent Islamist groups online? Let's hear from Lawrence. We have to uh, go on with the, the containment. I think it's going to be very difficult to eradicate all this propaganda from the internet. And what has been done uh, up to now regarding uh, high-profile ISIS media foundation, high-profile ISIS content, was quite an achievement because there was a decrease in terms of production. There was a decrease in terms of accessibility. So it's much, much more difficult for someone who doesn't have any connection in the real life uh, to find directly something online. Uh, in 2015, it was extremely easy to, uh, to find uh, ISIS propaganda. Now it's contained. It's uh, on more confidential platforms. So, of course, they are also emerging on mainstream social media, but with much shorter life expectancy. So I think that containing these propaganda to uh, more uh, confidential platforms is extremely uh, important. Important and something that has to be um, continued and the pressure has to be maintained because if one lifts the pressure, then content are, is going to emerge again and, uh, and they're going to uh, uh, take profit of every possibility that they're going to have. One other element that, uh, uh, that have to be mentioned, I think it's that uh, one has to take into account the unofficial uh, outlets and the nonviolent content. Nonviolent content, there was an extremely uh, interesting paper uh, by Europol two years ago about uh, nonviolent content. It's somehow, it's hijacking a conception of religion and it's, uh, you know, it's disseminating vocabulary that are hijacked by uh, violent Islamist groups. And so, of course, this requires a very refined monitoring. Uh, because nonviolent content and unofficial outlets are not so easy to find as branded content and official outlets. That some of them are even uh, designated by uh, uh, by the U.S., like uh, AMAC, for instance. So it's it's much more difficult to find, but uh, it's something that has to be taken into account in in the fight against this this uh, propaganda uh, dissemination. And I would say that thir the third thing is that uh, we have to maintain a mix of artificial intelligence and human uh, expertise because artificial intelligence is needed because the volume is still important, even if it's not the volumes of 2015, 2016, there are still important volumes. But the human eye is also extremely important to detect the uh, most in, in a more in, in a more refined way and a more accurate and precise way and, and to cherry pick contents that are the more uh, noxious. 
Touching on Lauren's answer there, at Tech Against Terrorism, we view human moderation as an essential safeguard to protect human rights, which is why all the content we collect and alert to tech platforms is independently verified by our expert OSIN team to ensure its official terrorist content. As Arthur says, moderation of terrorist content online has come a long way in the past decade, and it is now much more difficult to find and engage with violent Islamist content online. Much of this content, or at least the official unredacted versions of the content, is mostly confined to niche messaging apps and file sharing platforms. It's slightly more rare that you'll see official content produced by Islamic State or Al-Qaeda on the larger social media platforms, and it usually gets removed fairly promptly, if not automatically. And and, and likewise, you know, linked to our terrorist content analytics platforms, as I said, 94% of the violent Islamist content that we alert goes offline in the days following our alert. And just to kind of emphasize that figure, that compares to just 50% of the violent far right. So the violent Islamist content is obviously a focus area for tech platforms, rightly or wrongly. And those figures are based on the past 16 months of our TCAP alerts. So yeah, so it's obviously a focus. But in terms of what can be done, I think a particular area should be just, you know, staying up to up to speed with the fluid uh, selection of affiliated organizations and media entities, particularly in languages other than English and, and official content produced from these groups in Arabic. So content focused on some of the countries where IS has provinces or some presence, such as Indonesia or the Maldives, often remains online on larger tech platforms, particularly tech platforms based in the US which, you know, despite attempts to be global, can sometimes risk being Western-centric in their focus. I think governments essentially should should focus on providing support to those smaller platforms and obviously initiatives like Tech Against Terrorism, which, which also has the same focus uh, in knowledge sharing and practical support for those platforms. Similarly, you know, cross-platform monitoring and disruption is key. Focusing on one platform at a time isn't going to fix the issue. And then I think finally... To be honest, we're never going to completely eradicate terrorist groups from the internet, but essentially it's about friction and, and making the internet as hostile a place as possible for them to operate um, and reducing the spread of their, their messaging. Here at Tech Against Terrorism, our team of open source intelligence analysts continues to monitor and alert violent Islamist content online to tech companies. Supporter-generated and semi-official content play a key role in the online ecosystem for IS. Al-Qaeda and their affiliates. As part of the expansion of the terrorist content analytics platform, TCAP, we are looking to include this content so as to more effectively tackle violent Islamist networks online. A huge thank you to today's guests, Mina Alami and Lawrence Bindner, and again to Arthur Bradley for his expert analysis. To find out more about Tech Against Terrorism and our work, visit techagainstterrorism.org or follow us on Twitter at Tech versus Terrorism, where you can find more resources on today's topic. I'm Anna Krane. This is the Tech Against Terrorism podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week for another episode. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.